What's up, everyone? This is episode 115 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, some of you might have seen me put out a post on social media last weekend asking what card shows are worth traveling to. And I appreciate all the responses I've received so far. I posted that both for my sake and yours. I've been going to a lot of the same shows uh, since July and seeing a lot of the same dealers in the process. I'm ready to travel a little bit. I figure some of you are as well. If the National doesn't happen this summer, which by the way, I don't think that it will, I'm definitely looking at my options. Um, But in the meantime, though, I have got the Florida card show circuit, and I know there was a show in Miami a couple weeks ago. I've seen several recaps for that one on YouTube already. That was a little too far for me, but I did go to the Clearwater show uh, last weekend, and this is one that I've set up at at least five or six times before. I've shared some of those experiences with you in the past. Uh, People have indicated that they enjoyed that. So I figure I'll do it again. This time, however, I wanted to go in as a buyer. Now, ironically enough, before I could even make my first lap around the room, mind you, trying to buy, I moved a few nice cards to one of the dealers I've worked with a couple of times before. Um, One of those was uh, the Shaq Gold Refractor that I picked up in one of my YouTube lots several months ago. Um, You might remember seeing that. I also moved the Iverson Thrill Seekers that I picked up in my Starbucks parking lot purchase from episode 104. Um, I really hadn't planned on doing that, but, um, you know, he wanted to see what I had. The prices were decent, and that gave me a little extra money for the day just in case I needed it. So that was nice, but it turns out I didn't need it. I walked the room several times. I had all intentions of making some purchases. I even made a list ahead of time. And, um, you know, of course it contained the usual stuff, rare pacers, Hall of Fame patches, NBA final stuff, which I don't find a lot of that in general. Um, but I also added 57 tops commons. I uh, wouldn't mind of adding a, to my small RJ Barrett stash that I have. And then I wanted to keep an eye out for new pacers, blue prism parallels. I thought maybe I'd see that seeing as people, Uh, Well, it seems like they're ripping Prism, but I guess it's mainly retail. So I didn't find any of that stuff that really stood out to me. I guess I'm just getting very picky. Uh, Well, you know, I probably always have been, but instead I walked away with one $5 LeBron insert. Now, I did come across a really nice looking Bob Pettit 57 tops, and that's probably one of the more valuable cards that I need for my set or the, the start of my set, I guess. The dealer offered it to me at a fair price. It was actually a really good price, but it was still more than I was looking to spend. Um, The hunt continues, right? I told him, I said, you know what, honestly, this is probably too nice of a copy. So um, maybe I need to find one that's creased instead. So all in all, though, it was a great day. Um, Even though I didn't buy much of anything, it was well worth the $5 admission fee just to walk around and talk cards and move a few things in the process. All right, enough about that. What do I have in store for this show today? Well, um, I'm going to start with a few thoughts about Russell Westbrook. I've got a few pieces of mail that I want to talk about, 
And then I'm going to close by talking a little bit about hobby misinformation and what I think we can do to help combat that. So you'll want to make sure to stick around for that. Okay, let's talk a little bit about Russell Westbrook. Because, you know, you've heard it. His name's been in the news a lot lately. Last Saturday, he tied Oscar Robertson for the most triple-doubles in NBA history. He then broke the record Monday night. I've mentioned before that I was a little worried that ESPN and the NBA would just use Oscar primarily to promote the Westbrook narrative. They tend to do that with their older stars instead of actually appreciating them for what they did. But the Oscar coverage that I've seen so far and and some of the articles have been really good, so um, kudos to everyone for that. But more importantly, kudos to Russ, number one, for what he accomplished, but then also for the way he's handled everything. I was really impressed with his comments after he tied the record on Saturday night. He said, quote, To be in a conversation with Oscar, I just want to thank him because he set the stage. The things he was able to do back in the day has allowed me to do the things that I do today. So I'm appreciative of that, and I'm appreciative of his support as well. End quote. Uh, Now, I know there's been a lot of debate about the significance of the triple-double. Um, I know they're happening at a pace unlike we've seen before. I'm not going to sit here and try to rate the significance of this achievement. I will say two things, though. Uh, Number one, this is a record that stood for nearly 50 years. So someone else, you know, might break it again in the future, but he's in elite company. And um, I would suspect that if somebody does break it, which they probably will, records are made to be broken, um, it's going to be that caliber of player. I've heard Luka's name thrown around. I've heard Jokic's name thrown around. Who knows? They're off to a good start, but um, it's hard telling. And then number two, I want to say that three of his triple doubles have come against the Pacers this season. The Wizards won all three of those games. I know he's been accused of stat padding in the past. I think there's some truth to that, but they didn't. They they don't win these three games without him. And the March game sticks out in my mind because the Pacers had things under control and then uh, Russ went out of his mind, right? And in, in he just went off in the second half and finished with 35 points, 14 rebounds, 25 assists. That's somebody that um, is definitely impacting the game. So those are my two thoughts about that. Um, as far as the cards go, I know a lot of people have said that his cards are underappreciated or undervalued you know, whatever term you want to use. I generally try to stay away from that game. But um, if you want to celebrate this recent milestone by buying cards, just realize now is probably not the best time to be buying Russ stuff. But um, you know what? There might be some more of the rare stuff showing up. I've noticed a few tough Oscar Robertson cards that have showed up this week. You know, people are trying to cash in on his name being in the news again. You can't blame them for that. Um, But for Russ, I posted a couple... um, links to a couple of his rookie cards that I like on my Twitter this week. This is not buying advice. I don't even know what these cards sell for right now. They're just ones that I like. The first one is the his 2007-2008 Topps Finest XRC. And if you're newer to the hobby, Topps Finest used to have redemption cards for upcoming draft picks. Um, so like, for instance, Danny Granger's rookie year was 0506 but he had a draft redemption for the 17th pick in the 2004 product. So that was really cool. So he's got a 2004 XRC and then a 2005. So same thing with Russ. He's got a 2007 XRC. 
Um, I believe Panini still does this for football, but for whatever reason, they don't do it for basketball. Um, the other rookie card that I think is pretty cool is from 2008-2009 Fleer. It's a retro insert that uses the 86-87 Fleer design. I think there's also a glossy version as well. Um, you know, Russ has rookies in a number of different uni- uniforms, including he's got Sonic stuff and he's got Draft Night stuff with him in Sonic's gear, like a Sonic's hat and so on. Um, on this one, it looks like he's wearing the Oklahoma City Summer League uniform that he also wore for his Topps Chrome rookie. So that's kind of cool because it helps narrate the relocation of that franchise. Um, sorry, Sonics fans. Like I said, this probably isn't the best time to buy these, but if you want something different than your standard Tops or Tops Chrome, these might be two cards uh, to consider sometime later this summer when people aren't talking about Russ as much. So, Russ, congrats on a great milestone, and I look forward to watching you add to that total from here on out. All right, on to the mail. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about a Moses Malone patch that I added in my collection from UD Trilogy. Uh, it's a great looking card overall, but I mentioned that the patch was small, and I posted a picture of that as well. The patch is just small. I wanted a jumbo patch. Well, David, um, a listener named David, aka at Drum Drexler 22, he listened to that episode and he reached out to me. Um, he sent me a picture of a flawless jumbo patch that he was willing to move. And that worked out really well because I collect flawless jumbo patches for Hall of Fame players. So it fit right in with my collection. David and I have chatted quite a bit before about patches in general and his incredible Clyde Drexler collection. If you haven't seen it, make sure to check that out. Once again, his handle is at drumdrexler22. Um, So he gave me a fair price on this Moses and was really easy to deal with. So I appreciate that. Check out my social media if you haven't done so already. I will make sure to get a picture of that one up. Okay, the next package I want to talk about actually had four cards in it. You might remember from last week's episode um, that Steve and I talked about building 57 top set. In fact, I mentioned it in the intro today as well. So I'm, you know, it's something I'm going to do slow, but I do kind of want to have a, a trickle of these cards come in. And um, prior to recording last week's episode, I had just purchased a lot of four low-grade cards in SGC slabs. And they were four of the lesser-known players from the set, so I decided to do a little reading on each one, and I wanted to share the cliff notes with you guys real quick. So the first player was Don Meineke, and a couple of fun facts about Don. He was the very first winner of the NBA's Rookie of the Year award which they didn't have until the 52-53 season. So he was the first winner. That same season, he fouled out 26 times, which is still an NBA record. Not, you know, we talked about Russ breaking a 50-year record. Not many records have lasted for nearly seven decades. Granted, it's one I don't know if you would uh, want this record, but um, Don was a fouling machine, okay? All right, so next card in that lot of four was Larry Faust, and this is not the first time you've heard that name on this show. You might remember my uh, conversation with Slick Leonard, and he was talking about the 1960 Lakers plane crash, and if you'll remember when they landed, hearses drove them into the town and drove them to this little retirement home bar. Larry was the guy that busted the lock off the liquor cabinet, 
so that he and some of the other players could um, unwind, I guess, for lack of a better term. So ever since I heard that story, I wanted his rookie. I picked up a raw copy in a lot a couple of months ago, but it's nice to have a slabbed copy as well. It's nice to have that continuity. Okay, third player. The third player was Ernie Beck. And if you go to his Wikipedia page, um, there might not even be a... Well, I think it's just a single paragraph because he was more of a role player for his NBA career. So, you know, outside of mentioning the fact that he won a title with the Warriors in 56, there's just not a lot there. Um, I did, however, find another article about his college career, which talked about him being a pretty big deal at Penn. He could have gone to a number of big schools, but he was born in that area. He went to school there, high school there. That factored into him staying local and going to Penn. And then that's how he ended up with the Warriors in the NBA because they had his territorial rights. So there aren't a lot of guys in the 57 set still around, but Ernie is 89 years old. And um, from what I've read, he still attends Penn games whenever he's able to. So uh, maybe you guys have some Ernie Beck trivia that I didn't mention here. Feel free to shoot me a message. I would love to learn more. There's not a lot out there about him. Okay, um, last of those four was Willie Knowles, and um, Steve mentioned him last week. I've read a little bit about him when I was reading about other athletes, and um, I remember reading about him in Wilt's first autobiography, he was a part of, well, granted, he was on the, the opposing team, right? He was on the Knicks during Wilt's 100-point game. And he actually um, rode back to New York with Wilt in Wilt's car, I guess, because Wilt owned a, a nightclub in Harlem at the time. Um, Steve mentioned last week he was part of the first black um, starting five in the NBA and, um, you know, I hopped on his Wikipedia and I read a couple of obituaries and discovered that he also, he did quite a few other things to integrate the league and then some of the cities that he played in. So I saw that he wrote a book. I am currently building my summer reading list. I think I'm going to add that one to it. Hopefully I can get to all of them, but that's definitely something that I want to check out. So anyway, that was a nice little four card lot. It didn't cost me much. It added to my set. It prompted me to learn more about the history of the game and some, you know, some obscure players. So overall, I'm very pleased with that purchase. All right. The last card I want to tell you about in today's Mail Day segment is another classic example of a Mail Day that was a couple of years in the making. I've said it before. I know there are a lot of new collectors out there, so I'll say it again. Every interaction you have with people and every deal you make could move you one step closer to cards you've been wanting to add to your collection. Sometimes you just have to play the long game. Now, this example only spans the course of a couple of years, which that might seem long to a lot of people. Maybe you haven't been collecting for long, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that long. Um, There have been people that have been hunting cards for decades, but um, I digress. This card that I'm going to talk about today is a 1999-2000 Topps MVP promotion parallel of Jalen Rose. I talked quite a bit about these in episode 34 when I chatted with Mark, who was the Ron Harper collector. By the way, if if you got rare Ron Harper cards, shoot me a message. I'll definitely let him know. Um, Now, there's not a lot more to say about the card itself, but the story is pretty cool, so I want to tell that to you today. Back in June of 2019, 
a Jamal Tinsley gold refractor showed up on COMC that I needed for my 2003 set. And the price was a little bit more than I was looking to spend. The seller didn't really have offers enabled. And any of you that have used ComC before, you know that that makes things kind of difficult because there's no real messaging system on there. So the seller had a pretty unique username. I decided to Google it to see if I could find him anywhere else online. And it turns out he was a blowout user. So now he didn't have any more than maybe 30 posts. So um, I thought, you know, I don't know how often this guy logs on. I took a shot at it. Eventually he got back to me. Um, he was very easy to deal with, and he gave me a fair price on the Tinsley. So remember, for context's sake, that was way back in June of 2019. So uh, fast forward to a couple of weeks ago. So now we're in you know late April of 2021, and I get another message from him on Blowout, and he said something to the effect of, I bought a lot of cards the other day, and there's an MVP parallel in there I figure you might want. I saw your post in the MVP thread and remembered that I sold the Tinsley Gold Refractor to you as well. It's yours if you want it. And he sent me a link to the lot and I did a double take because I had seen this lot listed um, a year or so ago and I literally only wanted this Jalen Rose card in the lot. I couldn't justify buying the whole thing. There was nothing else in there I thought I could really move or nothing else I really wanted. I had this thing on my watch list a few times. And finally, I just let it fade away because I figured, you know what? It's just not worth buying for this Jalen Rose card. Um, lo and behold, this collector who I had minimal interactions with, he ended up purchasing the lot. And he offered the Jalen to me for free, not even knowing that I'd been wanting the exact card from that exact lot. So the hobby works in funny ways. Brian, if you're listening, thank you for thinking of me and sending this my way. I wanted the card to begin with. Now I have it. And it has a pretty incredible story to go with it as well. Okay. Before I move on to today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link or the eBay logo at the top. Shop as planned and the Wax Museum Podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hustle, grind, spam, profit. We're the Rip Gods. You're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, so this next segment is going to revolve around hobby misinformation. And I want to preface this whole thing by saying... I'm sure I've said a few things over the course of, you know, 100 plus episodes that were incorrect, but I do make it a point to go to great lengths to get things right. Um, after all, this is not a live show, so um, I approach every episode with detailed notes, and if I need to clarify something, I'll do all of that ahead of time, or I'll pause to verify anything as needed. Um, with that being said, there's still a lot of misinformation floating around out there, and Things, you know, misinformation on things that can easily be fact-checked. 
And this misinformation spreads um, anywhere where conversations take place. So I would say hobby misinformation is commonly doled out on social media, um, in card content, and at card shows. But wherever it takes place, the point is it's dangerous. And there's a principle or there's a saying out there that history is not always what actually happened, but rather it turns into what was written by the people that recorded it. And just like everything else on the internet, we've got a lot of junior historians out there right now. I want to run you through an example I saw a week or two ago on the blowout forums. And part of that is to show you that um, we have to understand how it misinformation spreads for several reasons. Number one, we need to know this so we aren't complicit. There are a lot of examples of people with good intentions that are just flat out wrong. Uh, number two, we need to be able to recognize it. You have to be able to determine what's trustworthy and what's not. And then number three, we have to be able to call it out in real time. There's a cheesy saying that applies here. When it comes to hobby misinformation, if you see something, say something. And that's really what I tried to do this past week. And here's how it all went down. I want to clarify ahead of time, I'm not trying to attack the poster that I was interacting with. I'm not here to put them down. I just want to use this example as a teaching tool for everyone at large. So, okay, so this is on the blowout forums, and a guy posts a thread with a LeBron patch that he pulled when he was 12 years old. It's a really cool story. The card's jersey number 23 to 25, and he's wanting to know the value. Nothing wrong with that. So several people chimed in on value, and the original poster added, quote, I love the fact that these old patch cards are actually game used, with game used in all caps, instead of just player worn. I hate that this is what all jersey cards are today. End quote. Now, I want to reread that last sentence for you real quick. It was kind of thrown in haphazardly at the end. He said, I, I hate that this is what all the jersey cards are today. Now, if you're new to the blowout forums, or anywhere for that matter, and you see someone post that, and you see that they joined the site all the way back in 2015, you might be inclined to believe that statement. He said, I hate that this is what all jersey cards are today, player worn. The problem is, it's just not true. Um, well, I followed the old principle of if you see something, say something. And I responded with this. I said, this is misinformation that I see spread all the time. A lot of the rookie stuff is player worn. Remember, we're talking about pre-COVID, but very little veteran stuff is player-worn. We're talking one or two sets from the last few years that I can remember. Football's a different story, but this is not the case with basketball at all. Now, end quote, let me emphasize here, if you listen to this show on a regular basis, you know this. You've heard me talk about it again and again. Before this season, okay, this is when everything changed, but before this season, the majority of rookie relics are player-worn. Later in the season, usually around flawless, uh, they use some of the game-worn materials they've acquired. However, for veterans, this stuff is game-worn. And I talked with Tone Stakes in episodes 60 and 61. He talked even about um, bidding on and acquiring some of this stuff for retired players. I've talked um, quite a bit with someone that was in charge of retrieving this stuff for current players. In fact, I'm trying to get them on the show. But the, the point is, the veteran stuff is game-worn. 
Okay, so back to this blowout thread. Now, keep in mind, you have that knowledge. Now, back to this blowout thread. Um, so even though some of the damage is already done, people could possibly read his original post um, and internalize it. That's the damage. Or repost it as fact. Um, so even though that damage is already done, I was hoping he would see my response and my explanation and step back and examine this situation again. I, I certainly wasn't on a mission with the end goal of him telling me I'm right. You know, that this wasn't an ego thing. And, and quite frankly, I already knew I was right. So I didn't need his validation. I just wanted productive dialogue that pointed to the truth. And instead he doubled down and hit me with a, eh, not really, man. And then the post continues as follows. He says, okay, I don't mean all of the cards are player worn, but it is a huge... That was in all caps, so I read it in Donald Trump's voice. A huge percentage of the cards made today are, are just player-worn. Look at the back of so many cards made today. It almost is always a player-worn jersey, compared to back in the day when a majority of all the cards were game-worn. End quote. Um, so at this point, you know, I realized I didn't want to get caught up in a back-and-forth of, yes, they are, no, they aren't. So... You know, I clarified earlier that the veteran stuff is not player-worn. He said a huge percentage of all cards are player-worn. So I figured the conversation would benefit more from evidence instead. No more he said, he said stuff. Give me the evidence. So I responded with this. Show me five cards of non-rookies from different sets that are player-worn, excluding rookie throwback sets, of course. Okay, so show me five cards of veterans that are player-worn. And before he could even reply, another frequent poster chimed in. And this is somebody that's been on the site since 2018. So we're going on three years now. And he said, I'll start. And he linked me to a Zach Randolph Immaculate Patch Auto that was game-worn. Um, and I already knew it was. But the link that he posted didn't show the back. So I went out on the internet and I found a card from the same print run. I circled the phrase game-worn from the back. The whole process took maybe a minute or so. Um, now, remember, this is not the original poster that that threw in this Zach Randolph card. This is a new entrance to the conversation. So I posted that for him. You know, I clarified for him, and he responded with, hmm, interesting. I actually inquired about this card since the seller did not provide a picture of the back, and he said it was player-worn. His loss, I guess, as I would have totally bid on it if I knew. Now... I want to make I, I want to point out that this person made an attempt to get the right information. His intentions were good, but someone told him wrong, and he then passed that information on as fact. Um, we need to learn to go to the actual source when possible. All he had to do was find another card from the print run. So um, instead of going into that entire spiel on the forum, though, my response was pretty straightforward. I said. Quote, this is how misinformation spreads, end quote. And at this point, the original poster jumped back in and said, each card is its own thing. There are plenty that are game-worn and also player-worn. That's why you always check it before you buy. Okay, so he understands the importance of checking each card, but he still made very general, incorrect statements earlier in the thread. And we have two different types of misinformation floating around in this thread now. I wanted to go back to the claims he made earlier, 
Remember, I asked if he could show at least five sets that had a player-worn veteran relic. He never even attempted that. So, you know, this time I just asked for one example, and he stopped responding. So we had misinformation from him at the start, and then we had someone else chimed in with their misinformation. Um, there's a lot of misinformation in one spot, and a lot of eyes are on that. Okay, that's a dangerous thing. So I know some people might look at his non-response and say, oh, well, you won. You know, well, I, I don't look at it that way. That's um, a dangerous byproduct of the first take era that I alluded to a couple weeks ago. Not everything's a debate. In fact, we all lost in this case because at least one person um, didn't let the facts take us to the conclusion that we needed to get to. We all lost because there's just misinformation now that's published and it's going to be hard to undo that. Um, and I want to go back a little bit and examine one of the more dangerous parts of that thread. Because like I said, one person spreading misinformation is bad, but when the second person jumped in and spread misinformation of the same type, well, then we've got a major problem because, you see, people are impressionable. If you um, then consider the fact that a lot of people are also either A, incredibly trusting, or B, lazy when it comes to fact-checking information, it makes for a dangerous combination. So when people then read things that are incorrect and they read them again and again, they're going to see that as validation instead of going to the source and checking that. Um, and then they're going to spread the exact same misinformation. And it moves like wildfire. You're not going to stop it. Um, you can really only hope to contain it. And that's where people like you and I enter the equation. Um, misinformation in the hobby, let's face it, it's really loud right now. And, and the concept in general is nothing new. You know, I think it was, uh, it was actually, it was Plato that said, an empty vessel makes the loudest sound. And, um, well, in fact, Shakespeare utilized a similar line in, in Henry V. But when it comes to the hobby, we've seen a lot of in empty vessels spring up in the last 18 months. And it's, it's not just people that are new. It's people that have been around for a while but um, aren't necessarily checking the facts. And um, there's still a lot of noise. So one of the major goals of this show, and, and it's always been this way, is to present the history of the hobby authentically and accurately, and to drown out some of the noise. So um, I especially want to try and reverse that noise today. So it would be nice if people would think about what they're saying, research whenever they're unsure, and only make claims when they know them to be legitimate. I know that's asking a lot. Um, so until that happens, I think there are instances where we need to try to be louder than the misinformation. As I showed you in today's example, when I see it, I'm going to try to tastefully point it out, and I encourage you to do the same. All right, well, there you have it. Um, just to recap real quick, be wary of hobby misinformation. Don't be complicit. Call it out and correct it when needed. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I encouraged people to extend themselves beyond their own little hobby circles and I think a lot of the, the hobby veterans and a lot of seasoned collectors have, have kind of gone off and removed themselves from some of these larger communities as they've been overrun by newer people, even though those a lot of those older posters are still there reading um, and consuming, by the way. And a part of me wonders if, if these communities would look a lot different 
if some of these people were still around to offer some of their insights, their experiences, um, and so on. I think that's another great way to help fight misinformation. Anyway, uh, I appreciate you listening today. Maybe there was something I said that resonated with you. Maybe you have some thoughts you want to add. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. This is very simple. Before you go to purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people can do that, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Thank you.